put that coffee down. Coffee is for creators only. My name is James Newcomb, and I'm inviting you to an exclusive accountability program that will help you set and achieve your creative goals. It costs nothing but your time and patience. Go to coffeeisforcreators.com to learn more. You're listening to Trumpet Dynamics, telling the story of the trumpet in the words of those who play it. Young or old, professional or amateur, you never miss a day of practice, or perhaps you're coming back to rediscover the joy you once knew playing your trumpet. For those who love and are fascinated with this crazy mass of metal tubing that no one can seem to master, or is at least wise enough to not admit it if they have, this show covers all of the trumpet dynamics. Hello everyone, this is James Newcomb coming into your earballs. This is the Trumpet Dynamics podcast telling the story of the trumpet and the words of those who play it. And what an honor it is to bring on to the program today, Michael Carrigan. He is known as the Horn Doctor. He is in the Kansas City area, and he has been a busy guy. We're going to hear all about it in today's interview, but uh, just want to say welcome to the show, Mr. Carrigan. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me on the show. This is awesome. I guess the cat is out of the bag. You have acquired all of the equipment from Canstall, which is now That's out correct. of business. And then you also acquired the Eldon Benj Company. That's right. We've, we've got some big things happening in Kansas City. <laughs> I'd love to hear your vision. And I know that we were talking a little bit before we got started how this pandemic that s- somehow seeped into the news may have interrupted your the flow of your business. But before we get into all that, every single person I ask, how did you get interested in the trumpet? First time, laid eyes on it, played it. What made you want to? I'll tell you what, I, I think most of your listeners uh, that have a similar experience will remember the first day that they got their instrument. Uh, and I, of course, like like others, I vividly remember the first time I got a trumpet. So my I was the youngest of four, and unfortunately, my my family was not in a position. They, my parents were not musicians, and they felt that they were not in a position that they could afford music. Mm. The school that I went to had a, a fee involved to be in the band in addition to having an, an instrument. So I remember my sixth grade year, my father started teaching at that school, and uh, that changed the dynamic. And since I was the youngest and everyone else was out of the school at that point, my parents said, hey, Mikey, do you want to play trumpet? Or actually, do you want to join the band was the question. Mm-hmm. And my favorite movie at the time was the Glenn Miller story. Oh wow! So, of course, I was fired up. Every time the band would play in the school assemblies, I thought, man, that's so cool. I'd love to do that. So when I got this opportunity, now all of my friends in class began band in fourth grade. So I got a little bit of a later start, which meant I had to catch up. And I think that was actually... Uh, to, to my advantage because it, it forced me to practice more and I really wanted it. So I started playing trumpet. It, it was the question between sounding like Glenn Miller or Louis Armstrong. And you chose Louis Armstrong. That's right. I picked, I picked Satchmo and uh, I started playing trumpet. And that's where things really took off in sixth grade for me. Tell us about getting involved in the instrument repair. Cause this is, I think this is fascinating because 
when you filled out the, I guess, the little form to schedule the interview, I always ask, like, what really lights your fire with what you do? And your answer was just so, it's just so intriguing because everybody's been to the repair shop to get whatever done, but not everybody, not every repair person, or maybe they are, and I just don't realize it. But I just sensed a real, just a real passion, a real purpose in just your short description of your work. So how did, what led you into that business in the first place? I think I owe a lot of my decision to go into working with my hands came from my grand. He was, came up through the depression as the greatest generation was in World War II. Mm-hmm. He fought the Pacific theater. He was a plumber and he built his house. I remember hearing the stories of him building brick by brick. He laid every brick and had just this beautiful home in Long Island in North Belmar. There would be there would be some times where family might not be able to afford the plumbing bill, but the guy was a milkman. So my my grandfather would strike a barter with him, do some plumbing work and trade for milk or whatever, the bread man for bread. So the, those are the things. I grew up the stories of my grandfather always helping out and chipping in. He was heavily involved in the scouting organization. He was always giving back to the community and he was a plumber and he worked with his hands. So I remember going out on the job site with him when I was a, a young man and just being in awe of these guys doing what they did. I, my first solder joint, in fact, was to get my plumbing mare badge when I was in the scouts with my grandfather. So I, I, I think that was always like really deep in the back of my brain is that working with my hands was something that was very appealing. I loved music. I absolutely mm-hmm. loved music. Before I learned that I loved music as much as I did before sixth grade, when I started playing trumpet, I knew that I'd be an archeologist. That was an archeologist. Yes. It was absolutely 100%. You could have asked me in third grade and I was one of the few kids that could spell archeology. span But what, what ended up happening is it was just like a natural thing that happened. I remember I got into high school and my band director there, who I owe a lot to, he he saw that I had an interest in instruments. I didn't realize I had what I had. He pulled me aside. Carrigan, let me have you help me do this and do that with these horns. And he showed me how to pull them apart. And he showed me what repairs he knew about. I thought, man, just pulling apart. I remember a euphonium. He had me pull apart. And I just thought, wow, this is awesome. <laughs> this is really cool. Anyhow, so I'd say repair just really got deep into my brain when I was young. In fact, my first repair was in eighth grade. And that, that kind of making something play that didn't play. And I think mm. that's what created the fascination for it that my band director in high school recognized. Mm. And uh, I just, as uh, I progressed, I went to repair school, of course. That's where I got my start, right out of high school. I was very fortunate to have learned about, it's a Minnesota State College Southeast Technical in Red Wing, right. Minnesota. Right. It is the foremost repair school, the most respected band instrument repair school in the world. And again, just very fortunate to have learned about that while I was in high school. And that's where I went to college. That, that was it. After high school, I went to Red Wing with the intention of being maybe a music education major. But I, I realized very quickly that this is what I needed to do. So that's where it all got started. And uh, that's where I was pointed from there. Oh, Michael, I think you'll enjoy making instruments, said my professor at Red Wing. <laughs> 
And I was like, again, mind blown. Wait, what? Somebody makes these things? <laughs> so that's really where everything got started. I, I think it was a natural progression for me because of my fascination for history. Then you start adding in there, you know, antique instruments, artifacts. If you're huh. going antiquing and discovering like Indiana Jones, this old cornet or this old trumpet. And then the fascination about how we look at an instrument today and we see what musicians are playing today. And there's so much behind the design and development of instruments that we'll find in the marketplace today. But I'm fascinated to, to know about the instruments that came before. So for a musician, you ask any trumpet player, and they'll tell you the importance of knowing where the music's come from. You're talking to what Marcellus talks about this all the time, talking about studying the old, the, the traditional jazz and understanding where we've evolved from. And it's for me as an instrument maker, it's very similar to, to know where we've evolved from and why. What's been done before? The, these are the kinds of things that fascinated me as I was a, a young man. And mm -hmm. I think I attest a lot of my own personal perspective to my upbringing with that. This is interesting because just a couple of hours ago, I just finished an interview with John Foster in Australia. Oh, great, yeah. Great Baroque trumpet player. And we got into the weeds a little bit about the history of the trumpets and the cornettos and going all the way back. And uh, <clears throat> it's so easy to think that life or like the history of whatever we're doing started when we were born. I think that's Maybe, I don't know if it's like human nature or anything, but we have a tendency to forget where we came from. And that's what, it's just why I love talking with people like you and John and all these other folks who just have this appreciation for for the history of our craft. So you, so you have this vision of yourself being an archaeologist when you're in the third grade, but now you're it's like you have this fascination with history, which drew you to archaeology, but you're just applying it to the trumpet. Would we call you the trumpet archaeologist? I don't know about that. I'm going on GoDaddy.com. TrumpetArchaeology.com is available. There you just go. So you know. I love Better it. Get it before I get it. One of the things that I fall back on for an individual like myself, but for the individuals of each of the, the artisans that work at our work in our workshop in Kansas City. When I think about anybody that makes an instrument, anybody that performs an instrument, everything falls back down to perspective and uh, everything is subjective. So I, I think one of the things that makes our company so remarkable is the size of our company right now. We are, we're growing, but we're still certainly considered a small manufacturer, but it gives us the mobility and the agility to actually pursue what other people might, when you're talking about music, we call it jazz. Not to suggest that every instrument we make is intended for a jazz musician, but just like music, as we approach building instruments today, we're looking at everything that came before and our ability uh, to innovate and maneuver with what we have to offer in the workshop really is as free as what jazz would be considered. When you get into a larger production situation, when you're doing tens of thousands of instruments at a time, 
obviously there's a lot of things involved that it's really remarkable for a large machine like some of these big companies in the world to operate. It's fascinating because they've been around for a long time and it, it's important and it's needed for the industry to uh, to have a lot of instruments in, in the world that will help musicians be successful. But what gives us the unique ability is that we're we're doing things a little bit differently. It's important to have a respect for the instruments and the, the designs that came before us, but it's wonderful to have the opportunity to evolve with what we're doing. And I think that you, if we talked about this, the acquisition of the former now defunct Canstool factory assets, the all of the equipment and tooling that was specifically for making musical instruments was transferred from Anaheim, California to Kansas City's historic jazz district and just offering us the opportunity. Before that, we had three or four trumpet bell mandrels, which was awesome. We had some really great options. Now we have so many options. It's freedom. And I think for sure, per capita, we have more mandrels than per capita craftsmen Anybody else in the world, probably ever in history. Did you call it a bell mandrel? Yes. So to manufacture, there's so many different variations of components that that yield different instruments, Mm -hmm. uh, different playing styles, sounds, information, things like that. One of the most important aspects of an instrument, the most important component that, that really defines the voice of the instrument is the taper of the bell. I should say is the bell. It, okay. it is the bell. Now, it, right. with that, you have different options. You have tapers, different, literally the design of how the flare expands from the smallest point to the largest point. You have the bell material. You have the thickness of the material. You have how the bell is made. You have the rim, the wire. Is the wire brass? Is it steel? Is it annealed? Is it unannealed? Is it copper? There's so many variations. To make a bell requires having a bell mandrel if you're actually producing the bell. Now, there certainly are plenty of places, uh, plenty of shops. When we first got started, if we were limited, we might seek a bell maker to produce a particular design for us that we would then do our, our magic to, if you will, until we would eventually have our own tooling for that. So the bell mandrel is a steel mandrel that's the shape of a bell and if you imagine a trumpet before the bell is bent it's straight so these are really long steel mandrels and just the factoring getting the dimensions on the bell mandrel designing the bell mandrel if it's a new mandrel altogether the the steel used to produce it the type of steel and then literally the uh, manufacturing of that mandrel is very bell mandrel is not an inexpensive thing that's why a lot of new makers or builders may not have a bell mandrel at all is because there's a lot uh, involved with, with getting one and to have, I don't know, 40 or 50 mm. trumpet bell mandrels now. So others would maybe outsource the making of the bell? You'd have two options. If you're a, if you're making trumpets, mm-hmm. you would have a, a trumpet bell mandrel. You might have designed or you might have uh, had it copied based on your favorite vintage such and such or whatever it is. But generally, you'd have one or two. You know, a lot of 
small shops would put a lot of their time into one bell mandrel that they that they're really going after. Maybe they have a couple. And then outside of that, if you did want to expand, let's say you want to make a flugelhorn, but you only want to make a couple of flugelhorns because you've been making trumpets for the last four or five years. You might not necessarily invest to have a flugelhorn bell mandrel made quite yet because you want to decide what it is you want to do. So you might experiment and explore flugelhorn design by seeking out a flugelhorn bell maker, whether they're right. German or okay. in the United yeah, that States. Makes sense. And that's how you get started and then decide what direction you want to go. But man, if you've got five or six flugelhorn bell mandrels to start with, isn't that fun? What's the process of making a mandrel? Like you say, you got to decide uh, what it is you're looking to do. Yeah, I understand that. But like, how long does it take? What is it made out of? It, they're made out of steel and they take, literally, they take a lot of time. Even if you're doing it on a CNC, a, con- a computer controlled lathe, where you program in and you spec in all your design that you want to do, it literally takes a long time because you've got to remove a lot of material from that chunk of steel to get it down to the point where you can start fine-tuning it into that French taper. So it, I would say some of the mandrels, they take 20 to 40 hours on the machine. That's after all the other design work you've done. That's wow. just turning a chunk of steel down. Now, there, there's a couple different ways of doing a bell mandrel, but the best way, especially for a trumpet, is just one piece, one large chunk of steel, and you mm-hmm. can only go so fast, and you can only remove so much material at a time. So it takes a long time on that machine. I love how you describe yourself and people working at your shop as craftsmen, because I guess I always think, and I know some of the specialty people who make horns, but you think of the Bach and the Yamaha, and they're, they're not, would you call them craftsmen or are they just factory workers who know how to, it, what's the difference between like folks like that with, with no disrespect at all to those people at all, but what's the difference between uh, like an environment like that and what you do? And I, I understand absolutely no disrespect within the industry as a craftsperson myself, I would always refer to anybody, no matter how small they're at a large factory, I would call it, certainly call them a craftsman or a craftsperson, a craftswoman. Yeah, I would do that. The difference, though, to answer your question, is the direction that we're going in Kansas City, we've got a small, tight crew. There's six, seven folks now. The responsibility of a craftsperson at our shop, our workshop, involves so many things. They're much more well-rounded individual than the general. At a large factory, you might literally have one thing you're responsible for. And you get some training on that, and that's primarily what you do. The longer you're there, the, the more opportunity you have to move over here to this area and maybe learn that as your skill elevates. With a small workshop like what we have, it's a necessity that we have more well-rounded craftspeople. So, of course, we put the same amount of time of training, but we put that in a microwave, and we really push our craftspeople to to do more and more things. Mm -hmm. When I got my start in this industry, I was very fortunate. I was the extra craftsperson. So there was one person building valve sections. We were building at the time trombones. There was one person building valve sections. That person also assembled 
the main tuning slide and the bell section, the trombone. We had one person that their responsibility was to assemble the hand slide on the trombone. We had one person that was facilitating all of the drawing of the tubing and the bending of the parts. That person had a part-time helper, so they had a little bit of help. We had two people in the buffing room making stuff look shiny and pretty. We had one person lacquering. We had two people that were uh, working in the machine shop that were running the CNC programs. Um, you have one person doing what we call final assembly. We had one person making parts. So when I took a position at this factory, it, it was a smaller shop, but I was the extra person. They said, you know what? Lou needs help with this. So we need you to work with him and learn how to do this to help him out. Hey, you know what? Eric needs help with that over here in the hand slide department. We're going to train you up to do that to help him out so he can speed up what he's doing. Hey, we need some help in the machine shop because James and, and Al need help with this over here. Hey, I was constantly being moved around. I was a kid. Like I say, from high school, I went to Red Wing for a year. And then from Red Wing, I took my first job at a factory. <laughs> so, mm -hmm. so I didn't necessarily plan how I evolved as a craftsman. And that's just kind of what happened as my apprentice. I was thrown into all of these various things and I learned so much and I, I do believe a lot of my growth came from that experience and that style of doing it. That has been what I've traditionally worked with when people come to our workshop. I guess they just know more of the process than someone at a bigger factory. Yeah, instead in, in a bigger factory, you might have one person making these poo-poos and these people making these whatnots and this person <laughs> installing the poo-poo and the whatnot. But in our shop, if you're assembling that thing, you've got to know how to make the poo-poo and the whatnot and how to put the poo-poo and the whatnot together. I'd love to know about the acquisition of the Eldon Benj Company because I had absolutely, I'm just completely out of the loop apparently, but what went down with that? What was the vision behind that? I've been a huge fan of the Benj Company for the longest time. The, the very first trumpet I got when I started my musical career, I had a Benj mouthpiece. So that was one of the few brands, as we're all coming into this, you could ask any trumpet player, whether they're a little guy or gal getting started or they're in the collegiate level. You ask if they can name an instrument company and you're usually limited to what their experience is with. Maybe my horn is a such and such brand or my mouthpiece is, and that may be the extent of it. <laughs> A lot of times they don't even know what their mouthpiece is. Sometimes they don't even know what their instrument is, but uh, you're generally limited. So it's fascinating to me. My first mouthpiece was a bench. I've been a big fan of bench for a long time. My son's nickname is Bench, Benjamin. So I could call him Bench. I've always been a real big fan. And I know that this conversation would come up years ago because as if you take the historian aspect of, of my passions, and you study these old instruments, whether they're made in Mount Vernon or the Bronx, or, and then you look at the Benj legacy. The guy born in Winterset, Iowa, played for the Chicago Symphony, started making trumpets in Chicago, moved to Burbank, like awesome, cool. This is, there's really neat history there. And then, unfortunately, the design of these instruments really diverted from where they were intended to go when that company was acquired back in 1980, 81. And 
when you're a collector or you're buying and selling instruments, you naturally learn these things because of supply and demand. So when you find out, oh, that's that's a bench, but it's not as desirable. Or it's not blah, 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 because where it was made, it mm-hmm. naturally pulls curiosity out of the collector or the buyer, the seller or the musician. Mm-hmm. Why? Mm-hmm. And you start looking at that. So really, the bench uh, trumpet has not been available to the world since 1981 uh, in its original design, its original form. And these old instruments uh, that came before that were so well loved by so many musicians. And when you look at the history of it, you see why they were acquired originally was because they were a threat. And oftentimes in a competitive market, if you've got a threat to your company, there's a couple ways of approaching it. One would be just to acquire it. Just acquire it. That That's a natural strategy. Unfortunately, this brand was left alone, if you if you will. It just was left outside to dry. And we decided we were in a perfect position. We had just acquired the, the Canstool factory assets. And among those tools were the original tooling from the Benj workshop in Burbank in Chicago. We have original bell mandrels and lead pipe mandrels and fixtures and machines and equipment. Because again, if you study history, you'll see that Zygmunt Canstool, who got his start as a repair guy in Kansas City, by the way, left to go to California in the 50s. A lot of folks moved to California in this window of time. And he moved out there with a friend of his to pursue a job as a, an artisan with this company called F.E. Olds. And so Zig got a start at Olds there in California and moved up the chain until he was the shop foreman overseeing everything. Mm-hmm. And when that's the climate of that started to shift and change a little bit. He wasn't really excited with there's new ownership and he saw where that company was going. So he jumped ship and joined the bench facility. Mm-hmm. And because he was so skilled with what he did at Olds and so experienced, he did great things at the bench factory. So when coincidentally, you could say Effie Olds and bench the end of those shops in California lined up almost exactly at the same time. It was between, you know, 1980 and 81 and Canstool is the guy who was there to catch all that. They had these auctions and sold all this equipment. And he was the guy that got it all. And as the foreman for Benj, when they were acquired, they said, Hey, we want to move production and we want to get what, what tooling we need. Some of this tooling is old. So he had new stuff made and the new mandrels went to the, the new workshop elsewhere and he kept the old stuff so that it, so we acquired cancel we got all the original tooling we're like oh my god and then in addition to that we had again very serendipitously brought on my mentor everyone's mentor at the shop but the certainly the gentleman that really helped push me the direction i went to start my my workshop his name was john duda and john's father was essentially the foreman for bench he started manufacturing instruments for the HN White factory. He started working with Eldon Bench in Chicago. When Eldon wanted to move to California, he told Lou, he said, Hey, Lou, I'm going to move the workshop to California. If I'd love to have you come out and help me. So Lou picked up his family, moved to California before Bench, in fact, started working at Olds and then got, then started working for Bench. So here we have a gentleman that he himself worked at Bench as a master bell maker 
we've got the original tooling and then we have an opportunity to pick up the brand that was left out to, to dry. And so it was just very serendipitous, all the moons line. If we hadn't had some of these uh, disruptions in regular living, we'll say in the last year and a half or so, yeah. uh, we would be so much further along in that. But we're excited about bringing it back. Everybody is bringing Benj back in, in the fashion that it should be with the original design concepts that Eldon had. And that's, that's where we are now. And we're really eager uh, to get to the point where we've got Benj back in full swing production here, which I can't, don't ask me when that's going to happen because we're, I wanted it to happen. Everybody at the shop wanted it to happen a year ago, Um, but we're, we want to do it. We're not going to rush it out of respect for the brand itself and all of the artisans that came before that were part of this, excuse me, part of that story. We want to make sure that we do it correctly. Speaking of trumpet history, wasn't Eldon Benj the recipient of that letter from Herbert Clark, basically saying that like the trumpet was formed in the pits of hell or something like that? He referred to the jazz. With the single Z-J-A-Z, that evil music. To straighten this out, like 8081, Benj is, like, the company is, it's like a threat to another instrument manufacturer. This uh, this other company buys them out, and then they just leave them out to dry? Or what, I mean, what happened with that? Yeah, they essentially put the original designs, they, that's, the original concept of what made a bench trumpet. Mm, okay. That design was essentially put on mothballs. And, um, what, what did they replace it with? So what they did then is they said, and again, when you're a larger company, I, we talked about this earlier. Uh, I have tremendous respect when you scale to a size like that, that you're serving the marketplace you're serving a purpose and you're getting a lot of instruments out into the hands and you want them to, good, to be great quality and things like that. But then you also have what really dictates uh, business from being positive business or not such positive business is obviously the bottom line. So when you're a bigger company like that, you've got to follow the direction of the revenue. So mm-hmm. what they realized was we want to acquire this company because they're a threat. Now that we have the company, if we're going to make instruments, well, doesn't it make a lot more sense since we have a big production factory here in this city, in this town, in this state to just shut down this small one that we just acquired here and all the way across the country over here where maybe rent is a lot more expensive. The building may literally be more expensive. Paying the employees may be more expensive. But the biggest thing is just the efficiencies that you'll have moving production to where you're having tens of thousands of instruments, if not more, produced each year. So what they did is they decided to move production. When you're doing stuff like that, now you're looking at a situation where there are so many features that make an instrument that make it special, whether it's a feel, whether it's the finger buttons under your fingers, whether it's the span of how wide the valve cluster is, which could be with musicians. I've, man, they're some of the most well-in-tuned no pun intended, but some of the most well-intuned individuals with the smallest nuances. We've had musicians, trombone players, that if you move the brace that they're holding slightly, they can feel it because they're spending thousands of hours playing 
that they get comfortable with this. Mm -hmm. So if the thickness of the balusters or the casing is a little bit, you know, thicker or just slightly more spread out, it doesn't feel exactly the same. So we're talking about fine nuances, but when you're talking about production on a large scale, decisions were easy for them to make. For example, you know what, why don't we just use this valve cluster that we're already producing and making for XYZ design that they have, that they're making thousands and thousands of. Let's just put this bell taper on that valve cluster, for example. And it might be a bell taper that was based on the original bench, but it may not be the exact taper because it's not the exact tool. The other thing is if it's not made the same way, it's not going to react the same way. If you're not using the same thickness and the same material and making it exactly the same, you have several variations that would dictate that the bell may not cast the sound the same way that this one did. But now you're also injecting more profound differences and variances with things like the valve cluster. And it's not just about how it feels in the hand, but it's how the ports are actually passing through. How's the air flowing through the instrument? So when you're making decisions like that based on practicality, hey, look, we make thousands and thousands of trumpets every year. Now we've got this new brand. So we're going to get some new tooling made. We're going to do it here instead of there. We're not going to have the same artisans. We're going to have our artisans do it because they've been making them for a long time. So let's do that. Even if you have somebody come and visit that was from that factory, it's not quite the same. And then you have all of these variables that throw in and you put the, the name on the bell, but it's, it's not really what that was. It, it may be, it may carry the same brand, mm -hmm. but it's not exactly the same, which isn't a bad thing. Like I say, it's it, there. I see Trump. Now I've gone through a lot of, a lot of thinking the last year and a half, there's lots of time for thinking. And I've come to realization that there, there is no right or wrong when it comes to making an instrument or designing or developing for, for any company to make a decision, there's no right or wrong. It's just what their perspective, everything's subjective. What are they dealing with if they're growing and you need a way of doing something slightly different. There's a lot of factors involved and what you're, what as a consumer or trumpet player, what really appeals to you is how the horn plays and how it sounds. So a lot of people get wrapped into, they use this special material that was recycled cartridge brass from the war. And that's why these horns sound so good. <laughs> no, man. Like you can scan those things with ultraviolet x-rays and find that the material is actually not different. Maybe not at all. But what is different from that instrument made 40 years ago is the process and how the bell was made or the process with how the lead pipe was made, hmm. or whatever. There's so many variables. It has nothing to do, really. In my opinion, as a, as, a, as a person who's been doing this for over a couple of decades now, I've got a lot to learn, and I understand that. I don't think anybody uh, has the answers. But what we do have is we have our own perspective and our own flavor. Hmm. And what you get from... From what we're putting out there is the collective ideas and understanding of what we believe, what BAC believes to be a good quality product as a team. That's what we're doing. And that's different than what these 
other companies might be doing or it's small workshops or big workshops. Again, it does, there's no right or wrong. Yeah. There's just, this is how we do it. Well, I'm hearing from you that you just want to honor the history of the brand. Like they did it a way that was distinctly binge. And then for whatever reason, maybe, I don't know, maybe it was well-intentioned, but it just didn't work out that way. But you you want to go back to what Benj is known for. Oh, and that at the root of everything, that the spirit of what, so BAC, Musical Instruments, Best American Craftsman, that the the whole idea you of our company. I mean, it's company, not badass Corrigan? <laughs> no, the, the whole idea of the company was to really preserve the, the legacy of American artisans. There's a lot of individuals that came before us. Dominic Colicchio, Eldon Benj, Vincent Bach, Ren, Ren Schilke, Foster Reynolds, and literally thousands of people that no one will ever know their name. Jake Burkle was the, the dean of the research and development department at CGCon back in the day. There, there are so many important individuals, men and women, that, that put the, the American legacy of manufacturing musical instruments on the map. And I would suggest that because we have the freedoms that we have, I think as a culture here in the United States, we've cultivated creativity in a, in a different way, starting way, way back. And I think that is an important piece of what allowed music to evolve in the United States the way that it has. And it's allowed a lot of incredible musicians to come and develop their perspectives. And the manufacturers that were in the United States had incredible access these legends now back in the day we could say and i think the spirit of that collaboration is really what made some of the musical instruments that people would suggest are are iconic legend instruments that were made from the 1930s 40s through the 60s what they were so best american craftsman now we own the bench name which is awesome but what we've been doing since the beginning is trying to honor the legacy of all of the great artisans in our approach to what we do. Whether it's a handcraft, we have a line of horns that we've named after various areas of Kansas City. Again, just tapping into that historical aspect. Um, whether it's a Paseo model that's named after a really important street that cuts the jazz district, or it's a plaza model that we have different perspectives of what we're doing. We're trying to provide instruments for the world that honor the tradition of manufacturing in America, handmade instruments, the way that they used to be handmade. We're very intentionally not doing things these ways and very thoughtfully doing things that way, because this is how they would have done it back in the forties and fifties. And it, again, we, we feel it's important to have that perspective available to musicians. There are so many people out there that would love the vintage such and such instrument made in this such and such city if you're a collector, that's really cool because you're trying to collect your baseball cards and you want the Honus Wagner and the Mickey Mantle and the Babe Ruth. But for a musician, that's who we're tailoring to. If you're looking for a horn that that performs a certain way and gives you the ease and sound that you crave, that you find on this old, we're here to tell you that it's our opinion and our perspective that what makes a horn perform and play that way is not the fact that it was made in that city in 1945. 
it's because it, the bell was made like this and the lead pipe was made like that. And the, they were bent like this, all these things. And that's what we're doing. We're trying to provide the world one horn at a time with some perspective and insight on what a musician would have expected back then. And if you're trying to sound like him or them, that, that gal or that guy, you might gravitate toward that design. But I think it's important to point out that we also respect the reality that music continues to evolve. Sound continues to evolve. Musicians continue to want to sound unique. Maybe Charlie Parker loved that horn because everybody he listened to played something else. And he felt that he had a more unique sound using that mouthpiece. Something appealed to him with that mouthpiece and that read and maybe that end. You could say that about any musician is that something appealed to them. And maybe what appealed to them is the fact that their setup that they had was unique and provided them an opportunity to have the, that identity with their sound. So you've got musicians today that maybe say, I want to sound like Charlie Parker. But you have a lot of musicians that say, I want to sound like me because I'm unique and I want to do that. And I think that is where BAC comes in because we respect the iconic models that everyone's trying to copy, it seems. We respect that and we offer that. But what gives us the edge is the fact that we're small and agile. And when it comes to custom instruments, we can make this instrument completely unique for you. I think that's really important. Uh, we, we know where we are and uh, we have a void that we're filling and hopefully we'll continue to grow into a point where we are a big company making tens of thousands of instruments and providing them with these great ideas and thoughts. But I don't think we're ever going to lose sight of that, the custom element. And I think that's really important. Not only it, yeah, it's just a really important thing. <laughs> I could talk all day. Preach it, brother. Preach it. My (laughs) goodness. One, I think the thing I like most about doing this show is just meeting people like Michael Cargan. Just hearing the fire in your voice when you're you're just fired up about, you're like the preacher on Sunday morning at the Southern Gospel Church, man. You're just absolutely on fire about this. And for me, it's not exactly my cup of tea. But listening to you talk about this just fires me up about what I'm doing, and it makes me want to do what I do. Just, it's, it's motivating in, it, in its own way. So, we are sadly out of time. As you can tell, Michael Carrigan can talk about this for hours on end, but unfortunately, our time together has come to an end. But my goodness, we're, I'm going to just have some detailed show notes on what we talked about at jamesnewcomontrumpet.com slash BAC. jamesnewcomontrumpet.com slash BAC. And um, man, I think we should do a round two sometime. Maybe when I'm back in the U.S. and we can talk shop more. That would sound great. Yeah, and uh, people can check our website out at coolisbac.com. It's like cool is back, but no K. C-O-O-L-I-S-B-A-C. Coolisbac.com. BAC Musical Instruments. James, thank you so much for having us today. What what you're doing is incredibly important. So I really do appreciate uh, the opportunity to join you today. 
Trumpet Dynamics tells the story of the trumpet in the words of those who play it. It also tells my own story. Join me on this journey through the world of making music and making life at jamesnewcombontrumpet.com. I have blogs, videos, event calendar, and much more. And of course, if you just want to access this great podcast, just remember the URL, trumpetdynamics.com, and you're off to the races. Looking forward to the next time. Be well.